Well, good evening, Grace Church. It is good to see everyone tonight. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Turn to somebody sitting nearby and just tell them you're glad to see them in the house of God tonight. Yeah, just take a minute and give them a big smile. I'm happy to be here. I hope you are too. It looks like you are from the smile on your face. Those joining us on Facebook Live and live stream, so glad, so glad you've chosen to make this, uh, Grace Church a part of your evening, and we pray that the service is a blessing to you. Uh, tonight, by way of, of beginning, by getting started, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I just want us to start with prayer tonight. I, I know there's a lot of requests represented here on campus, um, specifically Sister Kathy Davis has asked prayer. She is sick tonight. We want to remember her. And I want us to just take a minute and, and just get our thoughts kind of focused in and channeled in on, on what God wants to do for us tonight, what he wants to speak to us, and just to invite his presence into this place. Can we do that together tonight uh, all over the auditorium? In Jesus' name, Lord, we enter in with thanksgiving. We enter in with praise. We're thankful unto you, and we bless your name. And it is good to be here tonight. It is good, Lord, to be in your presence, to be with this great, great uh, community of believers, Lord, at Grace Church. And so tonight I, I just focus my thoughts, I focus my spirit, my heart, my life into what you want to do over the next few moments. And I pray you would speak to my mind and my heart and my, uh, my life through your word. And I pray for the, those that have needs tonight, all the needs unspoken. Pray for Sister Kathy, you would heal her body. Lord, and we'll be careful to give you the glory and the praise. Everybody say, in Jesus' name, would you just clap your hands to Jesus? Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. I believe he heard our prayer. God bless you, and you may be seated. Before we turn to the Word of God tonight, I just want to take a few moments and, and let you know what uh, is on the horizon in terms of church schedule. And uh, we, maybe we haven't mentioned it in quite some time, but I do want to just remind you there's a wealth of information on the church website and, there, and, and on the app. You can, a lot of things we don't announce, you can, you can find information there. There's a church calendar, you know, if you want to look further out as to what's coming up. So use that as a resource. Use that as your friend. Uh, but on the very near horizon, a few things. Next Wednesday night starts Kids Church. And uh, we're excited about that. So Mark and Calder, school's starting back. Kids Church is starting back. And uh, I'll just go ahead and let you know it's not in my notes, but I had a couple of our students ask, ask me, we'll be resuming uh, youth service on the 17th. So two weeks from tonight, we'll be back in youth service. So that's something to look forward to. And then a very special date to mark on your calendar would be August the 14th. So it's not this coming Sunday. But next, August 14th, first of all, Brother Greg Albritton is going to be back ministering in the 11 o'clock service. And that's exciting. That's good news. We so appreciate and are touched by the ministry of Brother Greg Albritton. But the second thing that's happening that day is there will be a bake sale in Grand Central in the, in the lobby, the, the foyer there. And that will all go to move the mission. And so I want you to come that day ready to... To, to buy a few things, spend a little money, go home with something really good. Um, it's not going to be the auction that we've done in the past where 
you might get outbidded. If you get here early enough and see something you like and you got your money, hey, it's, it's up, for the, up for grabs. So um, come prepared that day to participate in the bake sale in the lobby. So God bless you for that tonight. And um, we just want to move the mission. Our, our deadline for offering is August 28th, and we may have another event or two that we'll be talking to you about in the next couple of services, so stay tuned. But all of this, of course, going to move the mission. Tell your neighbor, say, I want to move the mission. You know, that they changed that, as you know, most of you. It used to be She's for Christ. And um, I, I just didn't do good with that change, going from She's for Christ to move the mission. For some reason, it didn't work. But now I think we're, we're a year, maybe two years into it, and, uh, and it's, it's really grown on me. I have to say I like it. I think it just, it, it sounds good, and I think if anything just encapsulates the vision of what we're trying to do, move the mission, is it. And so it just has turned into something very, very good, a, a positive change in my opinion that the students can rally around, see what we're doing, understand what we're doing, and make it happen. So um, that's what it's all about. So God bless you. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your support, uh, for all you do around here at Grace Church. With that, I'd like to turn to the Word of God tonight, and we're going to go to one verse of Scripture found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. And uh, tonight we're going to have a lot of Scripture. We're going to, it's Bible study night, and so we're going to be in the Scripture. Um, of course, it's going to be on the screen for you, so if you want to take the easy way, you can. Um, but if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your uh, device of choice, uh, I encourage you to because um, it's just good to, I think it'll keep you engaged and you'll follow along and see the riches of the Word of God and what it has for us tonight. So Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says, by faith Abel, so he's going all the way back to the Genesis account, Genesis chapter 4 as we'll soon see, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Interesting. He goes on to say, by which he, Abel, obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it being dead, yet speaketh. So apparently Abel's Sacrifice, his even in death, still has something to say to us. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And so from that text tonight, we're just going to talk about this, a more excellent sacrifice. A more excellent sacrifice. I really appreciate the ministry of Brother Jason Cooper uh, Sunday was a phenomenal message. The word found its mark. It, 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 it hit home. And God moved in a great way. And I really have been thinking about and feasting on uh, the statement he made that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was, was torn from top to bottom, not so that we could get into where God was, but so God could get out to where we are. And I just thought that was a powerful statement. It was a tremendous statement, and it really sets up what we want to discuss tonight. And I just want to tell somebody here from the outset that, that, that nothing can keep God from finding you. 
Now, we, we're, we have a will. We can run from God and hide from God, but, but he is relentlessly pursuing us. No bad choice, no sin, no shame, no failure of the past, no, uh, no attitude or, or philosophy can keep God from running you down. Not in a bad way, not to handcuff you and take you off to jail, but to, to pursue you with his love and to build a relationship with you. God wants that for us so much that nothing can keep him from that. The poet and songwriter Rich Mullins years ago said that he, he called it the reckless raging fury of the love of God. I love that description, reckless raging fury they call the love of God. It's passionate. It's without bounds. Nothing's going to hold it in. God desires us and a relationship with us. And I think that's just a beautiful starting point tonight. So tonight, I would, I would hope that when we leave here, you leave more convinced than ever of how beautiful the Word of God is and how it is fitly framed together to bring us salvation in a beautifully, intentionally designed way, a gift of salvation given to us that is most precious. So I hope you walk away with an appreciation for that, maybe in a new light. And if you're here tonight struggling under a load of sin or shame or confusion or doubt or misunderstanding, I want you to know that Jesus Christ has already paid the price for all of that. I want you to know that all you have to do tonight, if you haven't already, is surrender all of your, your hurt, your guilt, your shame, your sin, your burden. Surrender it to him. And he is still in the business of washing us whiter than snow. Still in the business of making us clean. Taking our burdens and lifting those right off of us. The Bible says we have a more sure word of prophecy. A more sure word. That, that means the foundation we have is strong. It's secure. This gospel message still works. It's still very powerful. So tonight, I want to ask you. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to admit but I wonder if anybody here tonight has ever had the opportunity to meet an actuary. Does everybody here tonight know what an actuary is? I've had the opportunity to, to, to know a few actuaries. I'm in, in insurance, uh, work for an insurance company, and insurance companies have actuaries. We have a staff actuary. It takes a special person to be an actuary. Now, I don't mean that in a critical way. I just mean that it's somebody that has to love numbers. They have to love analyzing trends and compiling data and um, interpreting what the numbers mean. I, I'm going to just tell you right now, actuaries are brilliant people. They're very smart, very brilliant. I'm very serious when I say I put them right up there with rocket scientists. I mean, these are people that love numbers and are good at it. We have an actuary, as I've stated, at my company, and he's brilliant. And he's in charge of, you, you, you've heard of these, you've heard of rate tables and rate filings and all. His job is to take all the data, how, how many losses we've paid out, how much premium we've taken in. Well, there's something called a loss cost multiplier, and, and he takes all of that and, and crutches all those numbers and comes out with rates, rate adequacy, they call it. 
and he can support his decisions with the data and with the metrics and with all of those numbers. We have a meeting once a month in which Bob, the actuary, isn't that just, I mean, that just works, doesn't it? Bob, the actuary. And uh, we have a meeting once a month in which Bob shares his actuarial findings. In this meeting, they've moved Bob to first on the agenda, and they've limited him to five minutes. And the reason is, is because before they did that, people like me were glazing over and falling asleep, and he was taking the meeting completely off the rails with all of his statistics and figures and facts and graphs and bar charts and all that stuff. But I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but actuaries really are fascinating people. But I learned recently that to, be, that to become an actuary, you actually have to pass a lot of exams. And they're very difficult exams. In fact, pun intended, the odds are that you will fail if you take the actuary exam. Here's a quote from the article. Actuaries quantify risk. One of their riskiest endeavors is to become one. End quote. Among the people taking at least one exam from the Society of Actuaries, 15%, only 15% eventually pass the multiple tests required to become an associate. Only 10% pass the additional exams needed to become a fellow, which is a higher designation. So yes, actuaries are in fact rare and prestigious group of people. But here's the thing, here's the thing. As long as those odds are, as great as those odds are that you'll pass the test and become an actuary, the odds are even greater of you and I passing the test of living a life in right standing with God in and of ourselves. By our own acumen, by our own will, by our own strength, the odds of us pulling ourselves out of the pit of sin on our own are very slim. In fact, they're zero. Through one man's sin, the Bible says, sin entered into the world. We were all born in sin and shaped in iniquity. We have a zero percent possibility of redeeming ourselves from sin. As good as you may think you are, as good as I may think I am, we, it is not enough. Our good deeds, our good works, our good self-image, our good opinion of ourselves is not enough to save ourselves. But I'm thankful tonight that we don't have to. Can I get a good amen? Thank you. I thought it was worth an amen. I'm thankful today we don't have to because God made a way. Jesus Christ is the more excellent sacrifice. He shed his blood to redeem us back to himself and has become our salvation. And I'm thankful for that tonight. I think that's something worth celebrating and being excited about. Amen. So that's kind of our, our basis tonight. That's our foundation where we're started. So let's go back to the beginning. As I told you, the writer of Hebrews kind of gives us a nod back to the Genesis account. So let's go back there and trace this sin problem from the very beginning. The first man... The first woman fell woefully short and utterly failed in their relationship with God with a single willfully surrendering to the serpent's suggestion, sin entered the world. 
the long-term consequences of that little episode in the garden are still being felt today, but let's consider briefly the immediate consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. They're the same four consequences that sin always brings, that it's always brought by sin. They're found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. We won't turn there tonight for brevity's sake, but if you want to go back and read Genesis 3, 7 through 12, the four effects of sin are shame, spiritual alienation, fear, and blame. It's kind of a continuum. It's kind of a process. When, we're, when we feel ashamed, Adam and Eve felt ashamed. When we, when we sin and uh, are guilty, we feel ashamed and we tend to cower and hide. That's what they did. We'll see that in a moment. Adam and Eve literally hid from God. But consider that, consider that in a spiritual sense. Not only did they hide from God physically, but in a spiritual sense, their shame caused them to withdraw into themselves, becoming distance from, distant from God. And that's what sin always does. It always pushes us away from God, thinking that we don't deserve or not worthy to be uh, in right standing with Him ever again. So that's the first thing, shame pushes us further, further from God. And of course, being further from God, we feel this spiritual alienation from Him and even from other people. We feel isolated. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes when, when, when the enemy tempts folks, he said, he'll, he'll say, well, everybody's doing it. A lot of times with young people and students, he'll say, everybody's doing it. But then when you do it, he'll say, ah, you idiot, you're the only one that's, that's struggling with that. You're the only one that's done that. You're the only one that's carrying the guilt of that. It's very interesting pattern that he uses. So shame and then spiritual alienation. The spiritual alienation produces fear, afraid, and then it results in the blame game, right? Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. You know, any, any, anyone, anyone in childhood has ever gotten trouble with, with a group of your friends, it was never your fault, right? It was always somebody else's fault. I see this even with my young adults, my students at my house. It's never the, the person with whom you are having the conversation's fault. It can always be spun into passing the blame somewhere else. That's just human nature. That's just who we are. And we see an example of that in the scriptures. The problem with the blame game, though, uh, blaming God or others for our sin, is that we effectively cut off the grace of God when we don't accept responsibility. What do I mean by that? Well, in the book of Romans, the Bible says, confession is made unto salvation. So it's a, it's a confession. Not, not, again, we can't do anything about forgiving ourselves. We can't, we, can't, we can't save ourselves. But our confession, our, our accepting of the responsibility for our actions uh, opens up the avenue for God to pour out His mercy and grace. So... We see this continuum. Immediately the first couple look to remedy, uh, look for a remedy to cover their shame and their nakedness. Uh, and so they grab what was perhaps most readily available and that was fig leaves. Why fig leaves? Why did they choose fig leaves? Well, one possibility is, is it may have been the quickest and most obvious way to deal with their sin. It may have been the quickest and most obvious way to deal with their sin. The problem is, is there is never a quick, easy solution to the sin problem. Again, sin is not something we can fix ourselves. There's no, there's no solution in that, in that sense. And left on our own to deal with our sin, we come up short every, every time. So 
woefully inadequate, woefully inadequate was that fig leaf. It was less than plausible solution for the sin and offered no hope for the restoration. So in an apparent move to uh, offer spiritual recovery to Adam and Eve, God replaced the fig leaves with coats of skin. Look at, um, yes, the inadequacy, the inadequacy of animal skins. That's, uh, that's our next point. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. It's often noted that an animal had to be slaughtered or sacrificed to provide this covering. But let's go a little bit deeper. Let's look at this in a slightly different way. The choice of the Hebrew word to describe this covering is kutonet, K-U-T-O-N-E-T, kutonet. Could be, it, could be, it could be translated tunic. That's the word used for coats of skin. It's kutonet. Or coats of skin is, is translated from that word. He, God made that to cover Adam and Eve's sin and their shame. But it also may imply something else, for the word kutonet implies common work clothes. Common work garb, if I may use that expression. So it, it implies then the transition from the peaceful... Uh, shameless, somewhat effortless life Adam and Eve was lead, uh, leading in the garden and enjoying in, in Eden. And, and now that they've sinned and failed, they've transitioned to the life under the curses that followed, a life of, of toil, a life of strife and work. And, and ultimately that very dust that they were they're toiling in, they would return to in death. So look at it this way. Here's the point is that, that that man and that woman made in the image of God, built to reflect the glory of God, now marred by sin, had to be covered and made to work and sweat and toil and be common in that sense. Once again, this blood of the animal and the resulting coats of the skin only temporarily dealt with the sin problem. Once again, proving less than satisfactory in remitting sin. So the, the fig leaves didn't work. The, the coat of uh, uh, the animal skins didn't work. The tunic didn't work. If we had time, we'd talk about that old covenant, that old law. It didn't work. And it sounds like a hopeless problem. It would seem like an impossible dilemma. What to do about this sin problem? But I'm thankful again tonight to say that it is not a hopeless situation. It is not a hopeless problem because... Even then, even at the very outset when sin entered the world in the garden, there was hope of a more excellent sacrifice. There was hope that a redeemer was coming. There, there was something better on the way. A better sacrifice, a more excellent sacrifice. Genesis 3.15, so after the fall we go to Genesis 3.15, probably or it is the very first prophecy concerning the Messiah, I, one I find just fascinating every time I study it and read it. I will put, God says, I will put enmity or hatred between thee and the woman, talking to the serpent. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. This early prophecy concerning the coming of Messiah opened the door just a bit, just, just revealing just a, just a hint that a solution to the sin problem was on the way. Notice the three distinct phrases contained in this prophecy. First, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. So in other words, there would be hatred between snakes and human beings, essentially. Then he says, I will put hatred or enmity between thy seed and her seed. The hatred between Eve and the serpent would extend throughout human descendants. But here comes that prophecy, that third statement. It shall bruise thy head and you will bruise his heel. The focus now shifts to a specific male descendant of Eve and the serpent, that is Satan himself. In other words, God was saying there will come a day, there will come a day that, yeah, yeah, yeah Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush you under his feet. This, this man, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, would be the more excellent sacrifice to atone for sin. If you've ever been through or taught the, home, the Search for Truth home Bible study, you ever been through that as a student or taught it as a teacher? Uh, early on, lesson, it's either lesson one or two, uh, that, that last chart of, of the lesson ends on Genesis 3.15. And, and, and I still, it's one of my favorite charts in the whole Bible study. I love to teach it for this reason, to think that this early on, Genesis chapter 3, that God had a plan. To think that, that in that moment where the enemy may have knocked us down, human, human beings, humankind, may have knocked us down for a moment in the garden. We weren't out totally. He may have won that battle, but the war was not over. Jesus Christ was on the way. The more excellent sacrifice was coming, and it was promised early on. Notice, let, let's look at this then from, an, from, another, from another perspective, another point of view. Look at Psalm 91, verses 11 through 13. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And notice the last verse. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Now, I believe we can safely say this was another prophecy concerning Messiah and probably echoed Genesis 3.15 because Satan himself used it when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, right? He said, you know, won't the angels, won't the angels bear thee up if you dash your foot against the stone? He was testing Jesus, probably coming back to this, this passage of Scripture saying, if you're God, if you're Messiah, let's see if you really will. Crush me under your feet. Will you really, will you really do what, you, what, what has been prophesied? Are you really him? I think he was testing him to see if he was really Messiah. And look at the echoes of Genesis 3.15. He says, he says, you'll tread upon the lion and the adder. Of course, an adder is a snake. It's just a fancy word for snake. Uh, and, and the young lion and the dragon shall you trample. The dragon is also a symbol of Satan. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, the lion 
is a symbol of Satan. Now, we talk about the Lion of Judah. That's Jesus, of course. But in 1 Peter 5 and 8, Satan's compared to a lion. So this, this verse in Psalms 92 is saying that, that the Messiah who was to come would have complete dominion over Satan. Complete dominion over that serpent that tempted mankind to fall in the garden. It reminds me of 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And talking about Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation of our sin. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is the fulfillment of this prophecy. That Jesus Christ came and was the sacrifice for the whole world. So that takes us tonight to our text. To the book of Hebrews. And... What I want you to know from the, from the beginning is that nobody knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Did you know that? It's one, of the, it's one of the books of the Bible that we're not clear on who the author is. It is fun, or at least I find it fun, to study some of the theories on who it might have been. And probably not, there's probably not a lot of reason to go into it tonight. We don't, we're in the interest of time mainly. But the point is, is that there's not a lot of consensus around who wrote Hebrews. But what's interesting is, is whoever wrote it had an amazing, amazing revelation and insight into the types and patterns of the scripture. And, and really the whole, the whole letter, the whole book is written to prove that Jesus Christ fulfilled to the letter every part of the Old Covenant. So where it says the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come. The writer of Hebrews sets out to, to, to show point by point, line by line, how Jesus Christ fulfilled every type and every shadow of that old covenant. In fact, I would challenge you tonight, over the next couple of weeks, go home and, and read slowly, prayerfully, and carefully the book of Hebrews and, and watch what just comes off of the page in Revelation about Jesus Christ. It is truly a fascinating book. And, and I guess we won't know till we get to heaven, but I would love to know who in the world had all of that revelation. But to the point of our uh, study tonight, the writer turns our attention all the way back to Genesis again, this time chapter 4, by talking about the sacrifice of Cain and Abel. Of course, Cain and Abel were the offspring of Adam and Eve, after the fall, after they were expelled from the garden, they had these two boys, uh, uh, Cain and Abel. And they went out one day, the Bible says, to offer sacrifice to God. Of course, Cain offered from the fruit of the ground and was not accepted. Abel offered from the firstborn of his flock and was accepted. And this is what I want you to get. This is what I want you to know. This is what to me is most amazing. The writer of Hebrews says that that little episode in and of itself was a foreshadowing of the great, great things to come through the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Again, our text, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So from this perspective then, Cain... And his sacrifice were emblematic and representative of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Law. It was not accepted by God because it was inadequate. It, it fell far short 
of anything approaching adequate sacrifice. But on the other hand, Abel's sacrifice was representative of the New Testament, the new covenant of Jesus' blood. And it was accepted because it was sufficient. What a beautiful, beautiful type and shadow of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he, the writer, he or she, takes it further, Hebrews 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Again, uh, alluding back to that sacrifice from Abel, saying that sacrifice pointed to the more excellent, the better that was coming. Notice how the writer continues with this, this phraseology or this, this verbiage of more excellent. Uh, he used it to describe uh, Abel's offering. He continues to use it down through the, uh, uh, the, the pages of his book. Look at this, Hebrews 8 and 6. But now hath he, that is Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Hebrews 1.4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So what does all this mean? What are you trying to say, Brother Dave? Well, I'm just trying to say this, that it signals to us, and it should give us great comfort and great hope and great, great confidence in the gospel message that from the very beginning, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, that God had a plan. He, he didn't discover Adam and Eve and their sin and, and, and go, oh, you know, you know, what, what am I going to do now? I didn't see this coming. Sin didn't get loose in the world and catch God by, by surprise. On the contrary, God knew that with the fall of humanity, we would always be inadequate in our ability to be in right standing with God. He knew that humanity was going to need rescuing, that we would need saving, and that we could not do it by ourselves. Quite succinctly, we needed a mediator. We needed a redeemer. We needed a savior. And to me, that's why the gospel is so beautiful. This salvation message that, that everyone in this room has experienced, that's why it is so beautiful that God, wrapped in flesh, dwelt among us as the man Jesus came to earth, lived, died, rose again. He was fulfilling the plan for our redemption that God had in mind all along. That's why John wrote in the book of Revelation, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. God knew. He had a plan. He wasn't caught off guard. He knew that there was going to be a sin problem, and he knew how to fix it. So I want you to know this, this, this salvation experience, this walk with God, this... this uh, this thing called our Christian uh, walk, our salvation. I want you to know it's not just happenstance. It's not, it's not just something we stumbled into and it's just a, a good idea to keep us busy and off the street. It didn't all just casually come together on happenstance. 
No, 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 no. I want you to know tonight that salvation was always part of God's plan. The church was always part of God's plan. The, the, the redemption of humanity was always part of God's plan. I'll take it further and more applicable. Your destiny, your life and its outcome was always part of God's plan. What about this? Your sin, your mistake, your failure. God already had a plan to take care of that even before you were born to make the mistake. Mercy is in God's plan. Grace and forgiveness is in God's plan. You and I are in God's plan. And I just think that is incredible and something to be excited about. I think it's something to rejoice about. So again, taking this just a, a, another step further, Jesus Christ, of course, is that more excellent sacrifice. And again, he, if you, I want you seriously, I want you to read the book of Hebrews slowly, slow, slowly and prayerfully uh, and just watch all the ways Jesus Christ established and made the law come to fulfillment. But to take a quick example, the writer, to, to show Jesus' supremacy as the excellent sacrifice is what I'm wanting to demonstrate here. To take one example, the writer of Hebrews says that under the old law, after the high priest had concluded the ceremony in the most holy place, he would return back to the holy place and sprinkle some of that blood of the bulls and goats on the altar of incense. And what, here's the point. While this ceremony was being conducted, no other high priest could enter the tabernacle. When the high priest went to the holy of holies, came back out, sprinkled on the holy place, he went alone. And this is what Hebrews has to say about that. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while that first tabernacle was standing which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. In other words, what he's saying is this. The restriction of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies alone represents the exclusivity of Christ's sacrifice. In other words, the ultimate and final atonement for sin comes with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that alone. No other sacrifice is needed and no other sacrifice will ever be needed. Jesus Christ himself alone is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. It further signified that true cleansing from sin uh, is provided uh, by Jesus and no one else. I mentioned that. It also shows that he was sinless. Christ did not have to offer sacrifice for himself. And his sacrifice was immeasurably superior to even that of the Day of Atonement. So, taking that idea of the superiority of Christ's sacrifice, just how much more excellent it was than the Old Covenant. Again, Hebrews chapter 4 says, not that Jesus was the high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it calls him the great high priest. 
The, he, uh, the Greek word there for great is mega. Just like we think of mega. Emphasizing his superiority to those high priests of the Mosaic Covenant. So let me hasten on here and try to, to bring this home uh, just a little more application. Because we have a more excellent sacrifice, here's the good part, as good as that was. We are a more excellent people. Christ's more excellent sacrifice makes us a more excellent people. Did you know that Israel, the nation of Israel, it was God's intention from the outset, that they be a nation of priests. It was his intention that they be a nation of priests, Exodus 19 and 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. He was talking to Moses. Had this happened, the people of Israel would have been privileged to enter into an intimate relationship with God. Instead, because they were disobedient, Israel became a nation with priests, but not a nation of priests. They became a nation with priests, only one of whom could enter the Holy of Holies one day every year. It was yet another example of the inadequacy of humanity to enter into a right relationship with God. But because of the blood of Jesus, because of that more excellent sacrifice, fast forward all the way down to the church age where Israel fell short in becoming a nation of priests unto God. Now we, the church, are a more excellent people in that we are a royal priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into marvelous Light, So that, that, that desire of God to have that relationship with his people, the one that Adam and Eve fell far short of, the one that the nation of Israel fell far short of, uh, he came and sacrificed himself on the cross of Calvary and made us partakers of his salvation, a more excellent people, a nation of royalty and priesthood forever. So, let me, let me finish. Let me finish very, very rapidly here. I'll, I'll give this to you for further contemplation without, without much comment because my time is up. If you'll read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25, there are four specific instructions that we have. As a, as a more excellent people who have partaken of the more excellent sacrifice, there are four specific things we are to do to, to live that out in our life. And here they are. Uh, 22, 23, 24, and 25. Here's what you will harvest for them. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. If you have the list, just give me the list on the screen if you have it. Uh, fast forward to the list. There we go, right there. Thank you. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Let us consider one another to provoke one another to good works. And let us not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Four distinct actions 
and, and things we should do in our walk with God to, to live in right relationship with Him and with one another. And I'm going to tell you, it kind of sounds like connect groups to me, if I'm just being honest. Drawing near to God, holding fast to our faith, considering one another, not forsaking our assembly of ourselves. I think uh, our connect groups just go a long way to helping Grace Church live that out in our lives every day. Amen. Amen. So in closing, in closing, I want to leave this with you. I've been thinking about this song. There was a song in the 80s and early 90s that if you were any kind of self-respecting youth group, you had to sing this song and sing it often. And um, I don't know how many people remember it, um, but it has been on my mind lately. Brother Jason sang for us Sunday. I'm not going to sing for you. He's a far better singer than I. But I am going to give you the lyrics. It just says this. Again, every self-respecting youth group had to sing this song. I have decided I'm going to live like a believer. Turn my back on the deceiver. Going to live what I believe. So there's those four steps that, that Hebrews gave us right there. I'm going to live what I believe. I'm going to live it out. Go to my connect groups. Be faithful to church. Then it says this. I have decided... That being good is just a fable. I just can't because I'm not able. I'm going to leave that to the Lord. Now he's not saying, the writer of the song is not saying that we should not try to be good and go around getting in trouble all the time. That's not what he's saying. He's summarizing everything we just preached about and taught about tonight. That in and of ourselves we're not good enough. In and of ourselves we can't pull ourselves out of the pit. But if we leave it to the Lord in his most excellent sacrifice, he alone is our redeemer. He's our Savior, and He is our God, and He is the one that deserves all the glory and all the praise. Do you believe that tonight? God bless you, Grace Church. Clap your hands to Jesus. And I see Tucker back there clapping with gusto, and I appreciate that. I got one good, good uh, amen and clap back there. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. God bless you, Grace Church. We love you. Can't wait to see you Sunday. Let's go in faith in Jesus' name.